52, the stanzas 1, 3, 4, and 5, without a further announcement. May God bless the preaching of the truths of his word. Beloved in Christ our Lord, over the last two years, there's been a lot of discussion about kingdoms. Much of our talk and a lot of the talk south of the border has been about kingdoms. Even though that word was never used, that was the topic. The kingdom of God and the kingdom of man. How these two interact, how we are citizens of both. How the reformers, especially men like John Calvin and Guido de Bray, interacted with the governments of their day. This has been at the top of our minds. There's a lot to say about this. This was a regular topic of discussion when I was at the seminary. The two kingdoms debate. But, as fascinating a discussion as that would be, as much as maybe some of you really want to talk about it, others of you probably don't, And so I'm not going to do that this afternoon. And why? Well, the two kingdoms debate, though it may feature in my preaching at some point, it it may feature on this pulpit at some point, it's not the main point of this Lord's Day. The main point of Lord's Day 48 is not two kingdoms. The main point of Lord's Day 48 is one kingdom, the kingdom of Jesus Christ. That's not to say that, that I don't live in the kingdom of man, That's not to say that I'm not affected by the kingdom of man. We all are. I am a Canadian. That that means many things to me. means important things to me. But above all, no matter how these two kingdoms intersect with each other, there is one kingdom that is far more important than the other. And there is one citizenship that is far more important than the other. I am a Canadian, but that might be point five or six in my identity. Because first and foremost, I am Christian. And as a Christian, I have rights and responsibilities. I have a citizenship in heaven. I have everything that comes along with that in God's already but not yet kingdom. And we'll examine together this afternoon how it can be torn down and how it will never be torn down. How it can be torn down. Now you may wonder how I can even say these words. How God's kingdom can be torn down. How can I say these words authoritatively off the pulpit? Didn't we just read together about God's kingdom from Daniel? A stone cut by no human hand destroyed all the kingdoms of men. The kingdom of Babylon, Persia, Greece, and Rome all destroyed. Verse 44. Verse 44 reads, And in the days of those kings... The God of heaven will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed, nor shall the kingdom be left to another people. It shall break in pieces all these kingdoms and bring them to an end, and it shall stand forever. This is a clear teaching of Scripture. So how can I say the opposite? Well, it's because it's not quite so clear as all of that. What does our Lord's Day say? It says, So rule us by your word and spirit that more and more we submit to you. Preserve and increase your church. Destroy the works of the devil, every power that raises itself against you, every conspiracy against your holy word. Do this until the fullness of your kingdom comes, wherein you shall be all in all. We see here 
if we look closely, that there are two kingdoms that are spoken of. It's not the kingdom of man and the kingdom of heaven, but still two kingdoms. Two overlapping kingdoms, both of them with the same name, but they're not identical with each other. These kingdoms, they're both the church. There is the church made up of the elect, made up exclusively of God's people, a pure and holy body with every single member, head for head, a living, faithful Christian. Made up completely of the elect. And then there are the churches, the visible ones, congregations of Jesus Christ that we can see. Congregations just like this one. This church made up of covenant people. A congregation where We hate to admit it, but it's possible there might be wolves hiding amongst the sheep. I cannot say head for head that every single one of you are elect. I certainly hope so. But our congregations here, they're typically mixed congregations. Our Lord warns of this. And so we'll see that this petition that we're praying, part of it is for these two kingdoms of the same name to resemble each other more and more. May the churches look like the church. When we pray this petition, we are praying that we would be sanctified completely, that we would be made holy, that every person in this congregation, head for head, would become faithful believers, that the hypocrites, that they would be found out, and they would have their spiritual natures, or their sinful natures, rather, made spiritually alive, healed, corrected, powerfully bent into submission to God's will. We pray that every person here, head for head, would be faithful. And then we pray that every faithful person here, head for head, would be made strong. And then we pray that every strong person here, head for head, would be made victorious. Faithful, then strong, and then victorious. We pray, preserve and increase your church. Because we can't see the heart much of the time. We focus on increasing the church. We want to increase the church. We, we want to market ourselves. We want to have a social media presence. We want to be that church that has the scripture text on the sign, on the road. We want people to come in the door and join us. There's nothing wrong with that. In fact, there's something very beautiful about that. That is part of our prayer. This must be part of our prayer. But that's what it is. It's, it's a part of the prayer. What comes first in the catechism, what should come first in our heart, is that God's church here in Sardis be preserved. What does it mean that God's church here in Sardis be preserved? Let me begin by speaking conceptually before getting into the practical applications of it all. So we must pray, first of all, that our love be preserved. I've said it multiple times over the last two years Maybe I said it the last time I was here with you. I'll say it again. Satan loves the restrictions that were placed on the church. And he would love for them to come back. But what he loves far more, what he loves far more than the restrictions is the division that the restrictions caused. Our love, our love must be preserved. It must not grow cold. Because a church that is without love is a corrupt and rotten church that can easily be torn down. We have to pray that our focus on the truth be preserved. And every truth according to its value. The truths about the gospel first, above anything else. As a pastor, you could say that I'm on the front lines of this fight. 
the front lines of the truth of the gospel, but that doesn't mean that you don't have anything to do with it. This pulpit must be guarded against heresy and error. What is a church that does not proclaim the truth of the gospel? It is no church at all. And finally, we we must pray that our humility be preserved. So easy with the other two, if, if we are a loving church, loving our own members, loving all the guests who come in, if we're a truthful church that preaches the pure gospel of salvation without anything else mixed in, if we have those first two, it can be so easy for us to become prideful. For us to set insanely high standards for anyone who would join us. For a guest, for a new member, we have the monopoly on truth and love, so you must shape up or ship out. Conform exactly to us, or you don't belong with us. So we have to fight against that. It can so easily look down our noses at other believers because they sing different songs than we do. Because the ratio of suits to sweaters is off for the men. The ratio of dresses to dress pants is off for the women. We can slip into pride so easily, forgetting the message of Jesus Christ. This is the message that we're all the same before the cross. The cross is that great equalizer for us. We'll hear that later today when we celebrate the Lord's Supper together, that the cross is the great equalizer. The table is the great equalizer. We all come to the table. We all come before the cross and we're told that we are great sinners, but that Christ is a great Savior. And so these, these are the concepts found in preserving the truth. Love, truth, and humility. So how can we practically work this out in our lives? In order to have a preserved church, love, truth, humility, how can we practically work it out? Well, we do so, we can do so with an ancient three-word instruction on the Christian life. Ora et labora. Maybe you've heard of it before. Prayer and work. Ora, prayer, labora, work. When we pray for God to preserve our love, when we pray for God to preserve our love, ora, literally pray that God will preserve our love. Literally pray these words. God, preserve our love. And pray for those you find hard to love. Pray for them, not so that they would change their minds and how they act and speak, but instead pray for their good. Pray for them to be blessed. Pray not that they would be easier to love, but that you would be more willing to love them as God loves them. Labora, work to love these people. Call them on the phone, see how they're doing, drop off a pot of soup or a bouquet of flowers. Invite these people that you don't like very much into your home and into your heart. May feel false at first, showing love to someone you're not feeling love towards, But what motivation could be better for love? God loved me when I was unlovable. I must love them when I view them as unlovable. That motivation is genuine and true and pleasing to God. That's love. And when we pray for God to preserve our truth, aura, literally pray these words, God preserve our truth. Pray for me. Pray for your office bearers here to have the strength and wisdom to teach and preach, proclaim the true gospel every Sunday. 
Pray for the elders and the deacons to use truth to guide their decisions. Pray for teachers and parents to train up their children properly. Then labora. Work for the truth. Learn the truth. Be steeped in the truth. First and foremost, the truth of what matters the most. Put the news, whatever news you listen to, mainstream or independent, put that on the back burner for a little bit and demonstrate an obsession for what we should be obsessed about, the Word of God. Invest time in God's Word. See it as food and drink to your hungry and thirsty soul. Read it. Read it in different translations. Read it, and if you don't understand a particular passage, discuss it with a friend, ask your elder, ask Tim Veenstra when, if, if he comes to serve as your under-shepherd, Consult a commentary. Find find sermons about it. Spend time researching what God has to say. Leave no stone unturned. Prepare for Sunday by reading the text that's about to be preached on. And if what comes off the pulpit is different from your research or the exact same as your research, maybe you read the same commentary, have a discussion about it. Have a conversation about it instead of just talking about the weather after church, even though the sun is very nice. Be obsessed. Be obsessed with God's truth. And finally, our humility. When we pray for God to preserve our humility, literally pray for God to preserve our humility. It's a hard prayer to pray because pride is something that is so deeply ingrained within us. I want you to think that I'm valuable and intelligent. That's pride. And sometimes pride needs to be taken down a notch. And if we pray this prayer, God will answer it. He will work humility in us. Might be embarrassing at times, but it's good. It's good. Then labora. Literally work humility in your life. Have an open mind to listen to other perspectives. If someone is different than you, see that as an opportunity to learn. Maybe they're wrong, but maybe you're wrong. Don't have a conversation with them for the purpose of converting them to your way of thinking. Conversations between Christians can't be conversions. Instead, talk to each other as equals. And even if they're wrong, even if they're wrong, there's something that you can both learn in that if you have eyes to see. Surround yourself with people who are different than you for the purpose of learning from them, not teaching them that they're wrong. This is what we are praying for our church when we pray, preserve and increase your church. And we must pray these things because the church is weak. The church on this side of glory is weak and subject to rot and decay and corruption. So we must pray and work for this weak kingdom to represent, to resemble the other kingdom, the strong kingdom, the eternal kingdom. That kingdom that will never be torn down. That's our second point. Now when we read Daniel 2 together, did your heart leap? Did your heart leap in joy and in hope and in eager longing? I hope so. Should have. Did your heart leap when we read Daniel 2 verse 44 together? And in the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed, nor shall the kingdom be left to another people. It shall break in pieces all these kingdoms and bring them to an end, 
and it shall stand forever. It shall stand forever. These words, these words more than anything else, should fill us with hope and fill us with joy. God's kingdom, that kingdom that we are a part of, it shall stand forever. And that picture of a stone, it should fill us with civic pride. The pride that we might feel when we see a Canadian flag that, that's swelling in our hearts, the true north, strong and free. The pride of the Americans when, when they see their flag, it's a bit much sometimes, flag that they call old glory, that they salute and protect. The flag has so many rights in America. Now, we have no such flag as the kingdom of God, but what we do have is a stone. We have a stone. Verse 34 and 35 of our reading. As you looked, a stone was cut out by no human hand, and it struck the image on its feet of iron and clay and broke them in pieces. Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold all together were broken in pieces and became like the chaff of the summer threshing floors. And the wind carried them away so that not a trace of them could be found. But the stone that struck the image became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. And typically, we, we don't think too much of the image or the symbol of Christianity being a stone. It's fine. I'm not advocating for us to change our branding because what we have is, is better than a stone. What we have is the fulfillment of the stone because the symbol of Christianity is the cross. And it's the cross that fulfills the stone. It's the cross and what is more, the one who is crucified on it who is what the stone was pointing towards. What's so amazing about this and yet we should not be surprised because it was God after all is what Daniel said. He gave glory to God for interpreting the dream. But what is so amazing is that we see that this dream came five to six hundred years before it happened. This dream is so particular. It predicted that after the fourth empire, the fourth kingdom, the Roman kingdom, that the rock of God's kingdom would rise. And this was the kingdom in which our Savior was crucified, and then his kingdom began to grow and grow. The church of Jesus Christ has spread ever since. This kingdom, this kingdom cannot be torn down. Every other kingdom will fall to pieces before the church of Jesus Christ. Our Lord says this himself. He takes the language of Daniel chapter 2 on his lips. Jesus says, everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces. And when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. Everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces just like the statue. Every other kingdom will fall apart when they encounter Jesus Christ. The Babylonian Empire was brought down to the ground by the power of God. You can read this in Habakkuk. How God's judgment will fall upon them and then the head of the house of the wicked will be destroyed with his own weapons. The cross, the weapon of Satan became his downfall. Then the Persian Empire was transformed when God raised up King Cyrus, who set God's people free and gave them back the land. And we can see that through every single kingdom that falls, it is God at work. Political kingdoms, they will break to pieces when they encounter Christ. And the same goes for personal kingdoms as well. Each and every person who sets themselves up as a king in their own life, 
everyone who claims kingship over themselves. It's a very small kingdom, a 4.5 square foot kingdom. That's how big you are. But as Abraham Kuyper once powerfully declared, he said there is not a square inch in the whole domain of human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry, mine. So God is completely sovereign. He was completely sovereign over the Babylonians, over the Persians, over the Greeks, over the Romans, over Canada. And he is completely sovereign over you, your heart, your kingdom. Whatever kingdom, no matter how small, no matter if you're the only citizen there, whatever kingdom and whatever king raises himself against Jesus Christ will fail. This is what we know will happen. It was shown to Nebuchadnezzar. It was explained by Daniel. And yet this is what we pray. I pray this for God's kingdom to come in its fullness, not to remind God of his promises, but to remind us of them. When God teaches, the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. We then echo his words and pray, destroy the works of the devil. We pray these words not because we doubt them, but because we believe them. We believe that they will happen, and we long for them to happen quickly. When God promises in Psalm 2 that the nations who conspire together against him will be broken to pieces we then echo his words and pray, destroy every power that raises itself against you. When God promises that disaster will follow those who conspire to return to the sins of their fathers, we then echo his words and pray, destroy every conspiracy against your holy word. We believe that the kingdom of Jesus Christ, a kingdom that truly has existed throughout all time, for our Lord is an eternal king over an eternal kingdom, we believe that that kingdom is still coming. And we see this in the last phrase of our Lord's Day. Do all this until the fullness of your kingdom comes, wherein you shall be all in all. There's no, there's no contradiction here in this petition. Believers praying for a kingdom that's already here. Because this is the already but not yet kingdom. It already exists. That stone, it exists the stone has already toppled the statue. But now, now is the time in the dream when the stone is growing. The stone is growing and growing in both size and purity. And so as the, as the church in this world, we must fight and never give up to bring about God's kingdom in its fullness. Let us not be distracted about what our version of his kingdom might be, but instead let us spend time in his word, seeing what his blueprint of his kingdom actually looks like. We don't need to reinvent it. We can't reinvent it. Our job, our only job, is to submit to the plan of the master builder. We must know his plans for the church and then never stop fighting to bring them about. Now we can fight in different ways as we heard earlier, but never forget Ora and focus only on Labora. Remember that this petition is, first of all, here in the context of prayer. This is God teaching us how we are to pray, and only after we pray can we act. Prayer reminds us that our strength is found in God, and only when we realize and accept its source can we use it properly for his kingdom. We are Christians first and foremost, above everything. More important than being a Canadian. 
Our hearts may beat a little faster at the sight of the red and white flag fluttering in the breeze, but let it beat a lot faster at the sight of the cross. Let us pray that God keeps this kingdom glorious and free, but even more, let us pray that God brings about his kingdom in power and in glory. And this week, maybe as a reminder, every time that you see a rock, no matter how big, no matter how small, remember the rock that is growing and growing until it consumes everything. So let us pray for God's kingdom to come and then work in the light of our prayer. Amen.